Camberley as well. So the uh, sermon title, there's nothing on, on the screen yet, but the sermon title is The Power of Love, which, am I right in saying there's two very famous songs with that title? Yeah, I'm getting some, I'm getting some nodding. Liz is doing the actions for it. So I must admit, I'm not going to sing them to you unless Liz has got some of her pink uh, champagne that I can borrow. But, uh, but it's a great song title, it's an, and hopefully it's a decent sermon. But what it certainly is, is week 10 of our On Mission with Jesus series, which you probably know is based on Luke's Gospel, and we're now almost halfway. And, as the sermon uh, series title suggests, mission is our focus. For we know that the early church, based on the foundation of Jesus' original disciples, changed the world. In just a generation, his mission became their mission. And now, in our generation, his mission becomes ours. That's what this series is about. That's what our lives are about. That's what this church is about. But the question I want us to think about today is what stops us? What stops us from really going for it? Giving everything for that mission of Jesus. And how can we turn it around? And in doing so, I want to respond to the challenge that actually Michael Harvey gave to us on Wednesday. I don't know if you were here, but if you were, you would have heard him say, and this is a second slide now, why do churches never preach on this verse? And you can see it there on the screen. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Little did he know that I was sitting there knowing I was going to be preaching on this this Sunday. And my starting premise is going to be the very uh, same one that Michael had actually uh, on Wednesday, which is that we're all capable of inviting people in his terminology, or in mine, we're all capable of going on mission. But that we don't, or we don't do it very much, is actually because of fear. Something which at first reading at least, I I guess that verse from Jesus hardly encourages us with, does it? It's not exactly enticing. But as we heard in the whole passage when it was read out to us, and indeed uh, the rest of the Bible readings, actually, taken as a whole, this passage is a huge encouragement to join in with the mission and to overcome our fear. So that's what I'm unpacking today. And I'll finish by sharing with you an opportunity that I think has been missing so far in this series, uh, but which I want to share with you today, which is for us, like those 72, can get some practical experience of sharing the good news of Jesus and of going out there into our community. So I'll talk about that at the end. And this is what I want to cover now in the rest of the talk. So we are looking, first of all, um, at... Two things which really are, if you like, excuses for our mission phobia, if I can call it that. The first one is that the problem's with us. It's us, problems with us that stop us from going for it. The second is that it's problems with them, the people out there, that stop us going for it. And the third is actually the antidote, the truth that can transform our confidence and melt away our fear. So... That's where we're heading, but first let's pray. Father God, thank you that you sent the 72 out. Thank you that you taught them. Thank you that you prayed for them. Thank you that they came back and they shared with you the joy in their hearts at what they had seen, at what they had done. 
And Father, I pray as we do those same two things of feeding on your teaching and your word this morning, and then in the weeks to come, stepping out, joining in with your mission, Lord, might you also fill us with joy, fill us with courage, and fill us with the assurance and confidence that only you can bring. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So first then, the problems with us, which basically is all the main reasons that actually we gave on Wednesday for why we don't invite people. They were written up on a flip chart here, you might remember. And for those who weren't there, they included these things. Fear of rejection. Fear of embarrassment. We preempt their answer, thinking we know what they're going to say, i.e. no. Or lack of confidence, lack of knowledge, or lack of skills. And if we're completely honest, these are disincentives for us all, at least at some times in our life. And for some of us, at least, we really do feel like lambs sent among wolves. We feel vulnerable, we feel ill-equipped, and we feel afraid. And yet here's the thing, Jesus sends them out anyway. So why does he do it? What does it tell us, and what encouragement does he give But let's first place the passage in context. Two weeks ago, you'll probably remember that Tim spoke about the sending of the twelve. And this passage is very similar. But there are two crucial differences. First, this isn't just now for Jesus' twelve hand-picked disciples with whom he had spent most of his time. This time it's a much bigger group. People who in many cases, presumably, Jesus didn't know very well at all. And perhaps they then represent um, us, those who are in the mass of followers of Jesus. So there's a sense with the 72 that there's barely any selection going on at all. Rather, the whole Christian community there at that time is sent out together. And secondly, this time, he doesn't just send them to the Jewish areas in Galilee either. He sends them to the Samaritans and to the Gentiles which was far less favourable turf. And we get a sense of the reception they might receive, at least among the Samaritans, just a few paragraphs earlier. Look in chapter 9, verse 52. Jesus sends his messengers ahead on his way through Samaria. But verse 53 tells us the people did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. The Samaritans, who were a mixed race, they were the product of a marriage of, or relationships between Jews and Gentiles during the exile. And the consequence of that was they were seen as half-breeds. They were resented by the Jews and excluded from the Jerusalem worshipping community. And their hostility then to anyone heading down to Jerusalem was the result. And so maybe the 72's mission field was a bit like ours too, as we most certainly are now a post-Christian society, one in which uh, all but the the most simple of uh, words or phrases or stories from the Bible are barely known. But though fear may have been the instinctive emotion for the 72 on hearing their instructions, as it might well be for us, Jesus offers them this encouragement. He says some people will welcome them. That's why he gave them specific instructions on what to do when they did. And as he said in verse 2 of the passage, the harvest would 
be plentiful. And that, of course, indeed was what happened. Verse 17 told us the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Their brief had been to heal the sick and announce the coming of the kingdom. But their experience revealed a deeper truth. As Jesus' kingdom expanded, the kingdom of Satan, the evil one, was being pushed back. And Jesus' response to their testimony confirms this. He says this, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. And he's speaking in metaphors here. He's saying that this is the spiritual reality of your authority and protection through me. And as Paul put it later in the New Testament in Ephesians, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And the message of Jesus and the experience of the disciples here was this. God's power is greater. Through his strength, victory could be theirs. And likewise can be ours. But don't let this get to your heads, Jesus warns them, saying, Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's salvation that's the greatest cause of rejoicing, and it's humility and gratitude that we should respond with from how we feel about what Jesus has done for us. And so, add it all together. And what can we take from this passage so far? It's that Jesus knows he's throwing them in in the deep end. But he also knows that some people are open. God's power will be with them. And that spiritual breakthroughs will come. And the same must therefore be true for us. God doesn't change. And actually, neither that much to people. And though demon possession may not be a characteristic, at least in this part of the world, we come across often, spiritual transformation certainly can be. Satan's kingdom can be overcome. Spiritual battles can be won. And we know that in our own lives, with our own struggles, when we invite God to root out our sinful habits or the negative spiritual strongholds in us, he is not found wanting I've been doing that in my own life, personally, which has been a big step of faith for me. And I encourage us all to do that, to seek God to minister to us and set us free from anything that holds us back. And he can do it in each of us, and he can do it through us to others as well, if we put on the spiritual armour and fight the good fight. And like the 72, when he does it, in or through us, we too will feel that joy. For though mission is hard and we need to be bold, prayerful and persistent, it will bring its rewards. For we're being who we were meant to be and we're doing what we were meant to do as Jesus' disciples. And if we are, God will be growing us through it. So don't read about the 72 and fear it. Rather read it and think that could also be me. God longs longs to meet us in our weakness. 
and to do great things. And through it, he grows us. He strengthens us. He blesses us as his mission is advanced. So that's my first section, which is the longest of the three. Tackling the fears we have about ourselves. The second now tackles a different fear. The fear that the people we witness to won't want to know. Which I have to say is just what the disciples would have expected when they were sent to the Samaritans and Gentiles. But the reality for Jews and Gentiles and Samaritans alike was just as Jesus had taught in the parable of the sower. Yes, there were three types of soil that failed to produce a harvest. But there was one that certainly did. And God could lead them to them, whichever religious or ethnic group they were from. And so too can he for us. But to capitalise, we need flexibility. For I think the tendency for us as Christians is to have what you might call spiritual blinkers. Exposed when we examine who the people are that we pray for and that we look to spend time with. Because for most of us, they are the people we're closest to. Our immediate family, our dearest friends. Now don't get me wrong, family and friends are great and we should pray for them. But if we're only open to answers to prayer for them, we will fall tragically short of God's plan for our lives. Because there are many other people out there that God longs to use us to reach. And Jesus said, as we've seen already, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are, are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go. We can be part of the answer to that prayer. And that's what we're called to as his disciples. And for the first disciples then, the 72, there's no indication that the harvest they reaped was actually among people that they knew. Rather, Jesus sent them to places and people they didn't know, but where the Spirit had already prepared the way. And that was even more the case in the mission that when it really started after the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost. For if you read the biblical account in the book of Acts, it's clear that what drives the spread of the gospel is not well-planned mission strategies. It was the prompting of the Holy Spirit together with the forced migration that persecution brought. They couldn't plan it and they couldn't predict it. But the Holy Spirit was always in control. And it's the same principle at work today. Though our persecution may be lesser, indeed we may not even call it that, but real harvest only comes through the provision of God. And it often takes us to the most unlikely people and the most unlikely places. And this is where I think the parable of the Good Samaritan really pushes us. For Jesus tells it in response to an expert in the law, keen to establish the limit of his responsibilities. And yet Jesus in no way plays ball. Rather, he says, our neighbour is not simply the people who live in our street, or even in our neighbourhood, or in our town. It's anyone that God places on our pathway, wherever we happen to be. And the target of the parable is clearly, again, our excuses, but not simply of the first century Jewish religious establishment. Rather, it's equally aimed at all of us who are Christians, who follow Jesus and have followed Jesus ever since. 
but who fail to see the ministry opportunities right in front of them, under their nose. Which we find ways of justifying to ourselves, if we're honest. And that video really highlighted that. I'm too busy. I don't have time for unscheduled interruptions. It's not my calling to do ministry among the homeless or the down and out. I can't afford to offer my resources to those I can't trust. It's a scenario we see lived time and time again. Yet the thrust of the video and the parable is don't discriminate. Don't consider certain people beyond the pale, people that we're not willing to help. And don't write off people as as those able to give help in the case of the parable. And it really took some serious adjustment for the disciples to grasp this, that God's kingdom would actually include Samaritans. And yet it can take serious adjustment for us too to accept that the church can include people significantly different to ourselves. The Church of England, for example, is still an overwhelmingly British middle-class institution. And yet Jesus surely calls us to challenge that and to make sure our church is as welcoming and accessible to those who don't fit that profile as those who do. But it's not just the short-term response of the Samaritan that challenges us. It's the medium to long-term commitment he makes as well. And it's in such generosity and longevity of care that true love shines through. For helping those in need in the short term can simply flow from duty, a sense that such help really ought to be given. And I'm sure we've all been in that position where we've helped someone uh, through that reason. But true Christian love goes beyond what would normally be expected. And in doing so, it communicates that the other person is valuable, that they are precious. In short, that they matter to us as much as they matter to God. That's what the Samaritan in the parable communicated. He communicated that love, the love of God, the love that says that every person is worth it. Every person is precious. Every person deserves to experience the love of God and to hear the good news of the love of God. Now, of course, this is a sermon series largely on mission, as is the sermon, and the parable gives no indication of any theological or doctrinal discussion taking place. It's an example of mercy, not evangelism. Yet the reality is, that it's only when we attend to people's practical, physical, emotional and social needs that the right to attend to their spiritual needs can even be earned. And that often takes time. Jesus, Peter, Paul, they stayed with people for days sometimes, and in the latter case, often weeks or months at a time. Why? They were building trust with people, sharing their lives with people, And again, it was in doing just that, that their genuine love for their fellow men and women shone through. Love that was surely immersed in prayer, responsive to the prompting of the Spirit. And not seeing time spent with people as an accident, with no divine purpose in mind. But rather seeing each one of them as divine appointments in which the Spirit of God was fully at work. 
That takes me then to my third and very brief point about mission, in which freedom from pressure and freedom from anxiety about the impact we have on others can be found. And it's to recognise that ultimately it's God's work, not ours. He goes before us preparing the no's as well as the yeses that he wants us to receive and preparing a set of experiences that will grow us, stretch us, tailored to the situation of life we're in. And the spirit is entirely realistic. It's a spirit of truth. He knows exactly what we can handle and what we can't. Just as Jesus knew the 72 would be okay. Our attitude then must simply be one of prayerfulness, openness to opportunities and obedience as God prompts us. Making time for people and responding to the needs of others as God brings them along our path and trusting him to guide us as we speak and as we act. Which means it's not primarily about our skill or our experience. It's not about our wisdom or our intelligence. More often, it's simply about our compassion and our faithfulness as we respond to whatever opportunities God brings our way. So that's my third point over, short and sweet. Cut short, because now at the end of this sermon, I want to tell you about an opportunity that we all have to give Jesus' mission a try using the opportunity that the run-in to a late Easter provides. So as a church, you're probably aware, if you've been here for a, a year or two, that we give out Christmas cards every year, and we give out Easter publicity to our parish, inviting them to join us this Holy Week. But on this occasion, in response to this series that we're looking at, I want to give us a, a much uh, better and bigger opportunity. By door-knocking, especially on Saturdays, round the parish, to create a situation where realistically we may find people in and we can talk to them. We can see if they've got anything they want us to pray for and if they've got anything they want to ask about this church, about the services or about God. Now, I don't know how that makes you feel. Perhaps like the 72 when Jesus sent them out. But we can do it. On three Saturdays, the idea is we'll meet here, we'll have uh, a little bit of worship, we'll pray together, and then we'll go out for the rest of the morning delivering those Easter cards, knocking on doors, and if anyone's there, just seeing what happens. And then we'll come back for one o'clock for a soup lunch to compare notes on how we've got on, to share the testimonies of what God did through us, and to celebrate what we've been doing together on mission as a church. So it's a great opportunity. When we take risks, when we get out there, when we step forward in faith, when we pray, and when we're bold, God will honour that. We'll start next Saturday, we'll do the next two Saturdays after that as well. It's not compulsory. But I really encourage you, could this be a step of faith for you that will really grow you? And is it a right and fitting response to what we're thinking about this term? I really think it is. So let's pray that we have as many spirit-led conversations as we can. And let's pray that we have some wonderful stories of what happens when we get back together on each of those three days.
Okay, of course that won't leave us enough time unless we're very quick to deliver them all. So we'll deliver the rest of them, uh, the rest of the time in the week in the normal way to make sure everyone gets one. But on those three Saturdays, will you consider joining us and being part of Jesus' mission together? So, how does that sound? And even if you can't do that, but you can come, but you can't walk around the parish, why not stay here and pray or offer to help the team providing lunch? There's a role for us all. Whatever our limitations, whatever our situation, God can use us just as he uses the street angels, just as he uses uh, lots of other people in ways of serving across this town. God will use us if we offer ourselves to him so that's what we have to look forward to but first i wanted to give us a more immediate chance to respond for the challenge god is giving us this morning is a heart thing it's about our love for our neighbors defined not in the geographical sense but in the spiritual sense as those god brings along our way and being filled with the spirit is Always what we need in order to take those opportunities. So can I invite us to stand? I'd like to invite John as well to come back up uh, as we move into worship in a few moments. So we've heard about the 72 who represent, if you like, all Christians, whatever their strengths, whatever their skills, whatever their personalities We've heard about where they went to the Samaritans, to the Gentiles, which represent the places around here. People who don't know about God. People who mix up many beliefs that they have with all sorts of other things. People who are confused in many cases. But deep down, people who are looking for truth, looking for answers, looking for hope, looking for love. And that love, can turn their lives around. That love can be seen through us if we ask God that it be so. And that love can be understood through us as we share with them our faith. So I want to, first of all, just invite us just to ask God to fill us with his spirit again today. For this is what we need. So if you want to just close your eyes, have your hands just as a sign of openness to him just in front of you. The way of saying to God, we don't want anything to get in the way of your anointing, your empowering, 